0: Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. My guest is Patrick Grimes. He's the founder of Invest on Main Street and uh, their private equity firm that's been doing deals since the 2007, 2008 timeframe. So we talk about Patrick's start in kind of a rocky time, obviously, for for the entire global economy back there in 2008, but how he handled that and came through that and went on to build a substantial portfolio. And then we kind of fast forward to today where they've got a distressed asset fund that they started, um and that was very interesting we spent a lot of time talking about that how they're thinking about deals right now in 2023 how they're getting deals done how their criteria has changed and then uh, just a ton of stuff on being an entrepreneur being a business owner having gone through you know a decade plus in the business and the things they're focused on now so very entrepreneurial guy sharp sharp guy um and they've got a ton of educational content and things like that on their site but it was a really engaging conversation i enjoyed it i hope you do too we'll have a a quick word from our sponsors and then get into the show if you're inclined a five star review helps us a ton so thanks in advance for that if you're up for it let's get into the episode with Patrick Grimes enjoy this episode is brought to you by DJE Texas Management Group a San Antonio Texas based real estate investment firm with a track record of transacting on several hundred million dollars of multifamily land and industrial deals throughout Texas DJE has been in business for over a decade and is approaching 100 team members in San Antonio. To learn more about DJE, visit djetexas.com or the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by apartmenteducators.com, a complete ecosystem for professionals to learn how to find, finance, and operate large multifamily properties for profit. You can get started with a free mini course and learn more at apartmenteducators.com or visit the link in the notes.
1: Patrick, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. How are you? Devin, I'm well. Really enjoyed hearing all about your podcast and your missions. Definitely alternative investments. Big part of my life and what we do here, so it should be a great discussion.
0: Yeah, I look forward to diving in and, and talking shop um, before we get into the nuts and bolts on the real estate and business stuff, would love to have the audience learn a little bit more about your background and how you came to entrepreneurship.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I started as a mechanical engineer out of college. I was a bit of a tried and true geek growing up. I love to play Legos, take apart VCRs, so do all this stuff, and so. Turns out engineering was a good fit for me. I did automation and robotics and I spent a very fruitful long career doing that. But right out of college, I got advice uh, from the founder of the high tech firm, Dave, good guy, still invests with me today. Uh, it's been we've known each other for a long time now. Uh, he said that his only regret wasn't making his high tech business bigger. It was not spending more time buying more real estate sooner. Uh, and that was a big wake up call for me. Yeah. And so, that's what got me.
0: That's what planted the seed. I love it. Yeah, you got a guy that's very credible, already successful. People like that tell you things, and in your ears perk up, or they, or they should, and they, and they hit home in a way that's different than um, the non-qualified people out there that that want to give you advice. So, what did that look like for you? Was your kind of transition to real estate? Was it? Was it learning? Was it investing in a coach mentor? Was it uh, going out and buying a small deal on your own? How, what was that path like for you? Uh,
1: <clears throat> well, so I was kind of out there on my own. I didn't know if podcasts were even a thing back then. <laughs> I downloaded yeah. books. I I did a little bit internet searching for you know resources I can find on real estate uh, and. I talked to I talked to realtors because that's only really what real estate meant to me. And they yeah. tried to get me to buy homes, but where I was at, it just didn't cash flow. And, uh, and then returns were so slow. I was looking for something that would really make a difference. And I got connected with some developers and I kind of did some research on one of the highest returning deals. And I got into a pre-development, personally guaranteed it uh, all in in one deal. And this was back in 2006 and 7, so I promptly lost everything uh, through nine and ten. It was yeah. a big lesson for me on how to invest. <sighs> like what happens when you try to just get rich quick, essentially, and not take your time and diversify, and uh, using dangerous leverage instead of lower, lower leverage that, and not buying for cash flow. So it was a pretty tough time. I. I went through foreclosure, They I took the property, it was recourse, so they wanted to come after me and did debt forgiveness. And then the government actually 1099 me for the forgiven debt, the bank's forgiven debt. So I was huh. uh, took me a while, but you know, I came out of that still very successful engineer, but just a battered and torn and embarrassed <laughs> real estate investor. Um did very well in automation. I got a master's in engineering and business, and once I started getting high income again, I started researching, well, where am I going to invest? And the breadcrumbs of the wealthy always lead back to real estate, but as the tortoise and not the hare.
0: Very interesting. Well, appreciate the transparency there. And that's um, that's a hell of a shock, but it's it didn't knock you out, right? Didn't knock you out of the game permanently. I think maybe that we probably both know folks that have had experiences that knocked them out of the game permanently. Didn't do that. Um, So you started coming back with a, definitely a different framework what was your approach upon kind of re-entering the re-entering the space was it different asset class different approach to being an operator versus a passive investor you know what were some of the things that you carried into your journey as you kind of came back in and and what market was this and what time what time frame was this when you were kind of okay took some licks on this first deal but getting back into it when and where was that
1: yeah, so it's a really good point. I, I was based out of Southern California or Northern California at the time. And mm-hmm. I knew that California wasn't a good place to invest. And I still believe today. Uh, so I it, it definitely rides the curves. The cap rates are so compressed. Can't cash flow very well. Not landlord friendly. Uh, a lot of exposure on your wealth here. And uh, so there's a lot of reasons why I was, when I got back into it, I started learning about uh, ways to invest where cash flow exists in mm-hmm. construction, about recession resilient markets, places where they have diversified employment, uh, where they're heavily weighted in a, a variety of different industries which have recession resilience built in, and so at places like Houston, and that was where I focused in to answer your question on my next wave of real estate investing and. While I was just laying it at automation and robotics at places like Tesla and Lockheed and all kinds of other, uh, just working with some some of the smartest people out there, I mm-hmm. was just buying night, moonlighting real estate. I was buying just uh, ca- assets that single family homes that were distressed that needed some loving care, needed some renovation, but I could very quickly in a short period of time cash flow. And mm-hmm. then I was getting low leverage. so that it would cash flow on day one and uh, and started building a portfolio. And it was working great. It's just once that, you know, moonlighting, uh, like many of your entrepreneurial individuals out there, the allure of following the American dream of becoming a landlord can get old quickly. And especially if you're very successful and busy at doing something else, I eventually, when I met my soon-to-be wife, I had to stop. I, actually, she was there for my very last single family closing. And I said, look, I got to do something else on the other side after we get married, which we did in California and Beijing. And then um, uh, I just traded up to, to larger multifamily and diversified into energy funds and some other kinds of uh, more sophisticated assets where I could partner up moving forward.
0: Yeah, it's such, a, it's such an interesting on-ramp for a lot of folks, myself included, getting a single family house and going, wow, the economics of this are, I don't know, they're pretty good. I was doing it in Texas. Um, you're doing it in California, but it was like, we can get some equity here. We can create, for some instant appreciation, not instant, but over a period of months, create some appreciation. Depreciation, like, okay, it's all stacking up. Let's go do a bunch of these. I feel like 10 houses is kind of the point where people start to go like, oh man, this is a there's a job and I already have a job, a good job. And, um, the model kind of breaks there, but it is a good on-ramp. I think one single family house like can be a great investment. It's just a little harder to scale it. Um, Mm -hmm. how, how are you managing your, I'm always curious, you know, people's early years, how are you managing your, your day when you're trying to get this stuff done? You're overseeing contractors, you're doing closings, you're, were you flipping them? Were you renting them? What were you doing with the houses?
1: I was doing the Burr method before I knew what the Burr method was. Nice. I, think yeah, I downloaded, sure. yeah, I downloaded a book called Hold Investing, and yeah. uh, I still have it on my bookshelf at my place in California. This is my place in Hawaii here, and so I was pointing at the the non bookshelf that's not behind me right now.
0: <laughs> if you're listening to the audio, go look at the video and uh, check out Patrick's background. It's it's real. We we're joking about a lot of the fake Zoom backgrounds. No, there's like a real Hawaiian background. So love it, man. Love it.
1: You saying that makes me want to rotate because the ocean is on is on the <laughs> foreground. I get to enjoy the ocean, and, and you don't get to enjoy it. Yeah. So maybe, if if so, you would see like fifty surfers trying to ride one wave in here on Waikiki Beach. <laughs> Love it. So, Love it. Yeah. You know, um, so your question, getting back to it, was yeah. related. To how did I manage it all? Well, uh, my high tech. Automation and robotics is very, very demanding in that every single uh, project that we did was a new one of a kind gizmo or gadget or a new approach to something, and then they would come to us say, "Hey, we need, we need automation. Design a system that would automate the manufacturing or processing of this, you know, gizmo or get medical device, solar yeah. EV vehicle, whatever." Yeah. So it was that is just all hands on deck, and so I, for me. I was needing to get 20 to 40 single family homes but where I felt like I was going to get there. And it, I burnt out before I got halfway there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because uh, it really was that I was traveling constantly for work and I was squeezing in little bits at the airport. And sometimes in the morning, I'd go home for lunch and I'd be learning to analyze properties and analyze, you know, call, trying, to, trying to call the vendors during their workday. Uh, While well, I was in California and and I was doing business out of Texas on the real estate side. Yeah, it was kind of brutal. Um, so I got there, I got to that burnout point a little bit quicker, I think, on the single family. But what was interesting is it, and I tend to be a little bit of that analysis paralysis, especially with my history of making some not so calculated moves, in, in my more eager years. Um, it took me two and a half years from the day that I said, hey, I'm going to stop doing single family. To dive in, learn about all private equity, learn about syndications, using other people's money, learn about multifamily and uh, and the different markets in the commercial space, meet brokers, analyze deals, learn about insurance, the new loan products. Very different world, very little overlap uh, in those and what I found. and But I did. I closed on 86 units with a partner and and I remember Brighton Place is a great project and we just knocked it out of the park. It's it's still kicking off like 8% a year right now. It's just a great, great asset. And um, uh, that 86 units took me about the time of about two and a half single family homes. Mm. And that was the awakening because the very next deal was like 170 units and the one after that was two hundred. And and eighty units, something like that, and then you know I've we've only done as much as like three hundred and sixty units in one deal, or we did a portfolio of seven hundred units because that was seven properties. But you know it just the rinsing this being an automation kind of systems guy and an analyst putting together pro formas and and models for for machine designs lent itself well to modeling real estate deals and the scale by which you can put the same amount of effort in uh, for smaller versus larger assets. I mean, it was a little more brutal walking 200 units, you know, <laughs> to do sure. the divergence than sure. it was walking one home, but you ripped that bandaid off. And, you know, I remember red eyeing out from Waikiki landing in Houston. And then three days later, having been through the 200 unit, just, you know, ready to stab myself in the eye. <laughs> but but that was a lot easier than driving to 300 single-family homes.
0: Yeah, there's no question. I like what you said about, um, about the overlap. And I, I say that a lot too. You could go flip 100 houses. You've done millions in real estate transactions. And you take that to a multifamily broker trying to buy 150-unit multifamily. And they're like, so how much multifamily have you done? And you're like, well, I've done tens of millions of dollars real estate investment transactions. Single family stuff like it did, nobody cares. Nobody and, cares. And a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the other skill sets. I mean, look, project management and the basics of finance on real estate, like some of that stuff's fundamentally the same. But I, I was just surprised how much of it is just a completely different parallel track. And I always tell people, like, if you if you're gonna get into the big track, you know, get a small piece of a big deal and get on that track because you're not gonna, you're not gonna run on this single family track. And then transfer all your skill sets over to the multifamily track. Some of it – and I, you know, if I like to see that somebody's done something and been su- successful. And if they've done a bunch of single-family projects, okay, then maybe that success will translate. Or maybe their career, success in their career or another area will will translate. But it, there's not a lot of overlap, and that's that's kind of counterintuitive, I think.
1: You know, and there's there's personality fit too, where uh, not a lot of individuals can let go of the control. I had to go through a big challenge of partnering up because these larger assets it takes it takes a team to to take them down. Uh, and you're you're building a company, uh, you're not just owning a building, and that's a very different skill set. It's a different kind of entrepreneur, uh, and and it's for most individuals out there, it's not the right path. I, I, you know, I write for Forbes. I've got articles on, you know, what the difference between single family and multifamily is. Patrick Grimes, single family versus multifamily. And I have articles on asset protection. I recommend everybody go to Forbes, Patrick Grimes, asset protection, talking to a guy that lost it all. These are the things you need to know. But my, my general sense is as a, as a, as an operator, if you're getting, if you have a very high paid business, like I did, you know, like most of your listeners do, you might be better off doing that and not trading time away from your family, friends, and hobbies to chase a single family portfolio or become your own manager of a multifamily portfolio, which means if you're going to be your own sponsor, you're creating a whole business. That's, That's doubling down. My end game was to leave engineering, which I still love. And I did it uh, parallel for quite some time mm-hmm. but uh it does it, it is going to it is going to be a completely new stretch and ultimately you can reap most of the benefits of the and in fact get paid before the sponsor as a limited partner with limited risk and liability only limited to the amount of capital you invested uh, and not have to trade any time away from your family friends and hobbies and I end up where I was, like not even able to get married unless I had to stop, right? My single family stuff. So, you know, I recommend people really take a hard look before they leap to becoming a sponsor, because it is it is more risky, uh, and you don't need to. Uh, it takes a ton of time. My my, you know, whereas as a, as a limited partner, not only can you invest in in deals, but you could invest in lots of different sponsors in different regions and different asset classes. You can't be an expert in everything. My uh, passive investor got on my website that I've had up there since the very beginning, because really I'm an all assets guy, not just a real estate guy. Sure, yeah. And it has, that the, the, low, the middle class is 8% of their wealthy, or their wealth in alternative investments, whereas the high income has 25 and the ultra wealthy have 50. So if you want to start investing like, The high income and ultra wealthy, you got to figure out how to carve out 25 to 50 percent of your wealth and then put them into not just one asset type with one sponsor that you might get really good at and be yourself and get way too indexed in that one thing if you go do it yourself. But more powerfully, you can invest as a limited partner into like our diversified energy funds, right, which gets you in a completely different tax advantage situation in a different market. Uh, market cycle, where you could potentially not have all your portfolio up, uh, as well as multifamily, as well as some shopping centers in different, varying markets, and so uh, that's what I kind of point people towards. And ultimately, there's like a ninety percent dropout rate in becoming a a sponsor of a multifamily or a syndication, just as it is. <laughs> just there's just a ton of tire kickers out there that that kind of get in it thinking it's a get rich quick thing. And then they realize it's just a ton of work starting a new business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Couldn't agree more. Being a sponsor is a absolutely career and it can be very lucrative and be, look, it's extremely difficult. Let's not, let's not uh, have any illusions about that for people. Have you seen that? Have you seen that meme? It's a flag that gets going around. It says we do these things, not because they're easy, but because they, because we thought they would be easy. (laughs) <laughs> i feel like uh, kind of a play on kennedy's uh kennedy's speech there but I, I feel like sometimes syndication is like that well i thought we were just going to come in and get 30 percent of the gp and flip out in 18 months and make a million bucks right it's like well that that does happen that can happen but uh lots of other things happen too mm-hmm. a lot of work along the way so um yeah people need to think long and hard about the real estate journey it's interesting how every ad- adult in my experience with any sort of financial wherewithal is kind of inherently interested in real estate. Like you don't need to say much at a barbecue or cocktail party about real estate investing for people to like, just offer, just kind of dive right into the conversation. People are interested in it. They just don't know a lot of the time how to, the on-ramp, how to get in there, right? They don't know any sponsors or, or anything. And so they think that, they're just going to go do it. It This might be a doctor or an engineer, high paid, and you're making a terrible trade on the investment you already made in your career to get to the point where you are to make a high income. You're trading it to go be like a property manager or like a project manager on a construction project or something like that. So um, definitely give that a lot of thought if if you're listening. Being a real estate sponsor can be great, can be lucrative. It is a career and that's going to take all your attention. Um, And then there's that middle spot of being a limited partner where you can access a lot of these things. You said it all, right? But access diversity of asset classes, diversity of sponsors, diversity of geography, all these other things. Own most of the project, own 70, 60, 70% of the project, whatever the setup is um, and and do nothing. I mean, I'm a limited partner in, you know, I, I was tallying it up the other day for a podcast I was on in 33 projects and some of those have gone full cycle, but a lot of LP positions out there that I have and when I get those updates from the sponsors I just think holy moly there's a lot of work behind this I know the work that went into it because I'm doing that on these other projects that I'm a general partner on and um it's it's really nice I I see both sides of the coin because I'm on both sides of the table and it's really nice to be able to park some money with somebody and you know other than your due diligence up front um it really is it's kind of the only passive real estate investment that exists. I I don't really believe mm-hmm. in passive investments as an in owner or sponsor. <laughs> Short term rentals, multifamily rental houses. Um, I've got some owner finance land stuff that's about as passive as it gets. But beyond that, if you're the if you're the owner operator, like it's it's there's no passive income. As a limited partner, though, yeah, passive income actually exists. That's a thing, but it requires a sponsor out there working it every day to to make it happen um what kind of deal so you you alluded to some of the projects and asset classes you're in now um multi-family energy um shopping center retail that kind of stuff we were talking a little bit before in the green room about your recession fund can we touch on that and kind of dive into what obviously i have some ideas about what the genesis of that was and and uh, 11 consecutive rate hikes and what that's doing to the economy but where did this come from? What are you guys targeting? What are you doing with that fund? Well,
1: so it's something really near and dear to my heart because new recessions have been something I've been a party to in the past sure. on yeah. the on the receiving end of of a yeah. bad deal. But um, right now, it's it's a little bit different play. The the typical playbook in these larger commercial investments is to buy something. Uh, then raise capital to renovate and then fix it up over the course of you know two to three or three to five years. And as you raise rents, the valuation grows. But that playbook isn't penciling right now. Um, inflationary costs on materials are growing and the labor costs are growing. Insurance premiums are up in some markets 30, 40, 50%. Texas, for example, the southeastern market, some of the best markets. Insurance is killing it. Usually it's only up 3 or 5% a year, it's 30 to 50% a year,
0: right? Now, yeah. there's uh, they're not writing policies. Yeah, in all
1: insurance carriers picked up and left in, in, in Texas and in Florida. Uh, and it's, this is not a political conversation about about whether or not you believe in global warming. This is this is just the fact that I've had two 500-year floods in the matter of a couple of years on one property. So there's just a whole lot more claims happening uh, for whatever reason. And But I mean, you take a look and you aggregate already just the insurance, the taxes, uh, the inflationary costs of labor and materials, the delays associated with uh, supply chain issues and scarce labor resources with the resignation here, which we're talking about are a combination of COVID and natural issues, right? Then you compound right. that with the fact that COVID delinquencies, I mean, we, there was just an article that went out that, you know, about about Atlanta. Uh, there's a huge class action lawsuit right now at, in in Georgia over them not just filing evictions. It used to take 30 to days, 60 days to evict somebody. Now it's up towards six months. So you just simply can't run a business if people are living for free. Uh, And this is post COVID, this is post, you know, eviction ban. This is rental checks, uh, resistance checks stopped coming in from the government. Those tenants never left. They never restarted payments. And uh, so this is really tough to execute a renovation strategy or any kind of business if people can keep going into your store and every month taking things off your shelf and walking away with it for free, right? So, so that's happening. The, the COVID delinquencies is a, is, a, is an issue all over the United States. Uh, and then the eviction issues of, of those, is, there's been a backlog. So you got to kind of stack all that together and then compound that with interest rates. I mean, it's all that and interest rates, right? Interest rates rising, as you said, uh, which decrease valuations. So what there's a couple of things, there's a couple of parts about that. One is is it's it's a it's a, it's setting us back in our timelines for these you know large renovation projects. I think that going into this, we still were very low leveraged cash flow. We kept right. eight months worth of reserves on the sidelines for a natural or financial disaster, and I would consider this a financial disaster, hugely financial disastrous event. We'll get through it, right? We'll write it out. We get fixed or or um, or uh, rate capped in interest rates, so. We're like I said, we're riding out this valley. So while while we do this, we have 26 assets that we've acquired, right? A little under, little over 4,000 units uh, around the country, and we get a couple that you know we're eyeing real closely. For the most part, we're riding out the situation. But is that the right way to put a deal together today? Mm -hmm. To do more of the same, right? As if nothing changed. Uh, And no, that's not the case. In fact, you look back in 2009 and 10, and the people that that made billions, not me, but the people who made billions during those times are the people who positioned themselves to buy right when they could buy right. And this is that time. All of those factors that we talked about uh, have created a large flow of distressed deals, distressed operators. These are people who didn't have the reserves, who didn't have the, the low leveraged in their debt, didn't have long enough debt uh, didn't have interest rates that were under control. Maybe all of that and, and and they're in a place where the eviction bans or the eviction backlog is still affecting them. Um, and all of that said, maybe they also had a natural disaster and th- but they were so stretched in everywhere else. They ultimately own great performing assets, but it's the ownership that is distressed, right? It's the financial. Right. Yeah, they need some relief. Right, and they need some relief, yeah. And so the recessionary acquisitions fund uh, is our fund that picks those those opportunities up. We we go direct to owner, uh, and we pick those up in cash. We close on the last one in uh, in fourteen days, and we'll walk in and we'll be the source of relief, exactly as we put it, by purchasing the the, the property in cash. Now we have. The Recessionary Income Fund, which is a debt fund, asset-backed debt fund, which provides right. a source of relief uh, and a bridge for them to get through at a time if they don't want to exit. But but what are we going to do with those properties when we buy them? We have this acquisitions engine that's going direct to owner all over the country. Or these, our target markets, all around our target markets, so still landlord-friendly, recession-resilient markets, we're still in the same good spots. A little bit bigger net than normal, but not much. And we're, okay. we're going direct to owner, we're, we love brokers, but right now brokers have been whispering prices which are unrealistic into these owners ears, right? And somebody has got to have a real conversation about getting them out of these deals and onto other things. So we're going direct to owner and closing quickly. And if they are motivated and distressed and need out, then they're a good candidate and we can help them do that. We're doing all cash. Uh, We then quickly pull out 50% loan to value. Talk about being low leverage, and then we'll buy a second asset with that. All within the fund, and then the 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 first asset we then do a 1031 exchange to a third asset. So the first one was refit into the second, and then 1031 exchange into the third. Each of those. So the first one's gone. Now we've turned one into two, and in the same way we turned two into four, and so the unlike. We got to really take your thinking cap off, right? Because normal syndications are you buy one deal and when there's a, you hold it for three to five years and you refi it, you get your proceeds from the refi and you sell it, you get your proceeds from the sell. we're going to hold for as short a time as possible. We're going to buy in cash as quickly as possible. We're going to refi out our capital, keep that velocity of our capital high, Uh, as fast as the highest velocity of capital as we can and then trade forward. So then this narrow window of time when we see all these operators that need help, uh, they need out, and we can reach out directly and do that for them, uh, we can buy as much as possible because there's a trillion and a half dollars in commercial real estate debt coming due by 2025. So you got all these other factors and their loan is just coming due. And their valuations are down, their income's not high. They're just simply not going to be able to recap it. uh, And we can help them out. Now, during this period, it was a very short window. If you put a hundred grand into one deal where they're gonna keep it locked up and try and renovate it for three to five years, gonna miss the entire buying window right now. So the goal is recessionary acquisitions, buying cash as quickly, trade forward as fast as we can, and then compound those to produce uh, a large portfolio because as you go one to two two to four four to eight and you keep repurposing the same capital into deal after deal and step stepping your growth from asset to asset gets really exciting
0: yeah that's I, I think speed wins here and the timing is critical I talked to so many people that are on the sidelines kind of waiting for one of these deals that you're talking about right um well so does everybody else right so are billions of dollars of equity and debt waiting for that and so there's there's uh trying to time a bottom and pounce on this and as a smaller operator think that you're going to beat out the entire world also trying to do the same thing i think um we'll see you know we'll see in 18 months how that 24 months how that strategy plays out for people but i think having something now that you can execute on now an acquisition engine is in place now and a plan to act very, very quickly. That's compelling. I mean, what kind of size assets are we talking about here that you guys are, I guess, two questions, size and asset class. Is it all types? Is it fairly narrowly focused on size and asset class? Or what what does that look like for the fund?
1: Yeah. So uh, we just turned down a $14 million deal (laughs) because we decided that uh, while we can raise the capital, there are... there, there are, it, say, deals half that size, we can typically get much better buys and move much faster. And mm-hmm. uh, once you get to larger assets north of 10, 14, it, it, they just, you just simply can't move as fast as we want. You can't close in 12, 14 days once we've completed due diligence. And uh, you get kind of above a radar in which uh, it gets harder to move those. So we may get there, but right now uh, that... Call it probably call it two to ten million dollar range um, where we can just swoop up as many of these as we can. And actually, the four to six seems to be that where you can literally get in there and almost double your. I mean, if you look at the case studies that we we have in our deck, it's just that range just seems to be a sweet spot where you can just. I mean, the the owners are a little less sophisticated. They're they're yeah. typically trying to fund it themselves. They're doctors. Or this last one was a. Was a computer scientist on the West Coast who inherited the property from his parents in the Midwest and obviously had no idea what he was doing. And he had no idea what he had. Uh, and he didn't care. He just wanted out. So, something yeah. in that realm, we can, we can, and we're, again, we're moving in and out of these quickly. So, it's not that we're making a bet on the long term health of that asset, that size. We're not setting yeah, up a basis market. play with cash. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. so that's why we're kind of ventured out where typically it's only one, two, 300 unit multifamily buildings. Well, if we can do, if you look at the case studies, 70, unit, or even we did a shopping center, uh, a couple shopping centers. The shopping center almost doubled the equity on day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we literally bought it and appraised right after we bought it uh, for you know quite a bit. We pretty much returned all the equity right off the bat. And uh, But those shopping centers, like again, we're not betting on net shopping centers uh, in the long run we're moving yeah. in and out and if we can't we don't if we know that we, the last asset we bought which was a shopping center we were the because we moved faster we got we got it but there were two other higher offers so just the ability for us to execute a short term within a couple month business plan properly fix it up, engage with the right brokers and market this thing and we can turn it for a pretty significant multiple just right off the bat.
0: I love it. Yeah. You've got to be able to adapt to these to these market conditions. And uh, I think that strategy is a, a great approach to do that. So this is set up as a debt fund for your LPs, or I assume in it. What does the structure look like for them? Say somebody wants to put a hundred grand in this fund that's buying these assets. And you guys are obviously managing all the massive complexity of acquiring, disposing, you know, the whole thing. There's a whole team I'm sure that's running all that, but as an LP, somebody just wants to say, Hey, Patrick, wanna, I want to play along here and um, be a part of this, let you guys do all the work. What's What's the setup for them?
1: We have two funds. One is the recessionary acquisitions fund where you're you're not on the debt side, you're on the equity side. Got it. Uh, and so if you put a hundred thousand in, unlike normal syndications where you're in it three to five, five to seven years and one asset, you're going to you're going to be a part of every asset in the fund and so we're going to continue to repurpose it probably into a dozen assets in 3 to 5 years now now in 3 to 5 years we have a 3 year lockup period if you want to redeem all or part of your investment and your profits you can do so so it's an open fund blind open fund where we raise capital when we need it we repurpose capital that we have within the fund we do distribute income from rents which gets exciting over time because one asset's not so exciting these days. But if that turns into two and four and sixteen, the the rents grow. But the refinances and the sale events all go back into the fund. If you want, if you want to return your initial investment, all are part of it, or all are part of your profits, you can participate in redemption. And that would be in year three where you make a we have a window where you can we have we have assets liquidating and are we going to reinvest it or, or are we going to redeem units? And, and so at that time you can choose like, Hey, I would like to redeem all or part of my initial investment or all part of my profits and we'll redeem part of your units or all of your units and then uh, sell offs, whatever we need to make that happen. Again, we'll have, we have lots of assets in the portfolio or we'll replace the capital with new people coming in. So it it gives you a little more flexibility than a normal syndication too, and a lot more diversification. No doubt. Uh, and that's on the equity side. And what it gets real exciting is because we keep stair stepping up your equity on the buy. If at any point we stop doing that, we'll just sell off the assets. You're not trapped in there and hoping right. to ride out a recession. Um, on the on the debt side, which is the recessionary income fund, which is a, a real estate backed debt fund, that's a that's a cash flow play, and it does have cash flow with upside because uh, there is. Uh, we, there's a varying types of loans that you know we can originate uh, from you know 10 percent to fifteen percent, and there are some shorter term gap loans which are north of fifteen to twenty percent. And so we, we provide a couple options to the debt investors that want a low risk cash flow play at a time when it's really tough to get cash flow in real estate. Uh, we have a a a, a 9 or 10% uh, share class which gives you a 9 or 10% preferred return immediately paid out and then we give you a 50/50 split above that of all the extra uh, uh income we're able to pull in through fees as as well as um through the higher interest rate loans that we've got and then we have that's kind of like your debt fund and then for if you're in it for 2 to 3 years you you'd you'd purchase a class A or B shares and In that side but if you want something that's really short term like 90 days right 180 or a year we also have that too in the debt fund so it's a little lower fixed interest rate and we have those you want
0: a 90-day position that seems like just for filling out the paperwork i want more than 90 days but people take you up on that
1: well here's the here's the beauty of that right is that most every investor i talk to they're they have, they're, they're kind of feel like, the, the problem is you never know when you're in the good old days when you're when you're in the good old days, okay? <laughs> That's right. But <laughs> so for me, for me being like the analyst, I'm sitting in my seat going, are you kidding me? I could not buy this for this basis three to five years ago. Yep. I mean, right now you're in the good old days because it's only going to be, it's going to get better for the next year and a half. The buying spree uh, until 2025, through 2025 at least, we're going to yep. have like these, we're going to be in the good old days but most of the investors are still like sitting on a pile of cash thinking yeah. that something's gonna come and that pile of cash is dwindling down and they're risking a bank collapse to, to, to get it back. And uh, it's dwindling down because inflation is much higher than the government's telling you. And yep. uh, and that pile of cash is giving you a negative return. And so a couple of things that happen, right? Somebody calls and they're like, hey, I would like to invest uh, but I, I just want to wait for the next deal we'll at least put it in something that's hedging inflation like six seven eight nine yeah. percent short term 90 180 whatever but if you're really wanting to invest in our recessionary acquisitions fund we' we'll, we'll, we'll put you in a 90 day note in the debt fund you'll immediately start accruing a return and then we'll give you a priority position into the acquisition fund right um, but if you, Want to invest in somebody else's syndication? Well, let's put it into the debt fund in a short-term note, and yep. we'll hold it for ninety. There's a penalty if we pull it out, but you're still going to be net higher. Uh, you penalty you pull out sooner if you have to, but for the most part, you, you know, you ninety days is usually fine for most people. But you're, even if you have to do the penalty for the early pull, you're still going to be in a much higher position. Uh, by putting it to work, then you would be in a money market account right now in a debt fund. And then you can put it into somebody else's uh, syndication, right? The reality is I'm trying to give options to investors yes. that are putting on that pile of cash because it's me being, you know, the analyst is painful to just, to just kind of see the liquidity dwindle of investors who have put it to work and been so smart with it for a long time. Now they're in the best buying opportunity of the second best of my life, you know, yep. nine and ten being the one that I missed because I was being drugged through the, the gutter. And and then instead of buying, they're just letting inflation eat them alive.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's not visible. They say, Oh, the e- my e-trade account's getting four point something. And that's that's visible to me, right? What's invisible is The cost of everything going up and the purchasing power of the dollar devaluing at a rate that I I don't know. See CPI numbers. I don't. I'm on board with you. I don't believe those numbers, but it's it's invisible. It's not tangible. Whereas your your CD or your E trade account or your T bills or whatever is feels more real, even though things are getting eroded. Um, I love it. That's great perspective, and I think that's an exciting place to be right now, with the ability to acquire assets and and you know, would you thought doing your first house that you'd be buying small $5 million deals, right? That that would be like, Oh, Hey, this is, these are small, these $5 million deals are this small. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh. Yeah. Funny so I, changes. I, I, I remember when I was underwriting these deals and I started real, you know, like one, $2 million multifamily deals. And then I realized that like, you really don't make the best until you get like 80 units, you don't really make the best economy of scale. And right. so sure enough, um, I went from, a portfolio of, of three bedroom, two bath. So my first, it was 86 units. And the guy that I was working with on it, he goes, he goes, yeah, I got this really small deal. You know, I just, I'm kind of distracted with these other things. And I just, I don't know, can you help me out with this small deal? It's so 86 units. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, And I was like, yeah, absolutely. World, that's man. actually perfect size for me. That's, that's exactly what I want to do. So,
0: yeah. Yep. That is too funny. Well, what would you say? I appreciate you sharing a lot of your backstory and uh, um, how it's informed your current approach to your business. What do you say to yourself or somebody in your shoes that's just starting out, that's wanting to take that active entrepreneur sponsor route, and they're and they're just getting started from your vantage point now?
1: Well, I'd say you've got to you've got to be ready to have the grit. Um, that's just like starting any business. Um, yeah. It's an entrepreneurial endeavor, uh, where you're going to learn, especially if you're wanting to trade up into larger assets, you're going to need to carve out significant amounts of time, many hours each day during the daylight times, because now you're working with sophisticated people in the single family world. They're more used to, you know, people trying to squeeze it around their jobs, but in larger commercial assets, it's everybody else's job. They don't want to hear from you before or after their shifts. Right. So you got to be ready to carve out a significant amount of time and grow as a person. You can't be the same guy that buys single family homes with their own money, manages them, and kind of then goes on vacation and disappears for a while. You're, once you're using other people's money and you're in these larger securities syndications, uh, you're all in. You're unlimitedly liable for these investments. There's no protection for the sponsor and you have a greater degree of responsibility. So you better be ready to make that commitment, and you know, some of the gurus that I, I'm not a guru, I don't do coaching packages, but some of those gurus I talk to, they all tell me that the the dropout rate in the space is over ninety percent. I mean, they're selling twenty four forty thousand dollar coaching packages, and you know, and they're like expecting ninety percent of the people to drop out.
0: Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Grit. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And being all in is absolutely what it takes. Don't have any illusions about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Patrick, this has been great. If somebody's listening, wants to connect with your company, what you guys are doing right now, where do we send them?
1: Invest on Main Street is where we do the multifamily uh, assets. And uh, if you go to investonmainstreet.com and I have a book out too. If you're wanting to inspire some people along their way, I'd be happy to offer a copy of that. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, please. Okay. So investonmainstreet.com slash book is the secret link. Invest on main and then street.com slash book. The book's called Persistence, Pivots, and Game Changers, uh, Turning Challenges and Opportunities. It did make an Amazon bestseller. It Excellent. did it with some really cool people. Uh, Phil Collins, uh, Colin Lee, guitarist, and Def Leppard, an actual rock star, wrote a chapter. There was a it. Brian Love Tracy it. wrote the foreword. There was some entrepreneurs. Uh NFL, NBA players, really fun, such an amazing group of people. And I told my whole story, the ups and downs, the pivots, and uh, all of that went through to that through my life and the the good and bad and ugly times. So if you're interested, we we do ship out a signed hard copy of that. I sign them and we send them out. It's just a way to, to give back. So if you go to that website, make sure you put the name of the podcast or what, what would you like your promo code to be, Devin?
0: You can put it under DJE.
1: DJ Okay. Yeah. So put that put that in the promo code. We don't send it out uh, to randoms. We kind of want to know where you came from and that you, sure. that you didn't stumble across us, but happy to chat with anybody as well. I One of the things that I love about what we do is I now have the time. I've left the engineering space in full time and I get to talk to investors wherever they're at in life. And I have tons of resources and content articles I've written that I can pass along to help educate Wherever you're at, whether it's single family, multi, or you're in the stock market or doing some crazy derivative stuff, I'd be happy to chat with you and, and see where that's at and get you pointed in the right direction. Uh, Invest on contact is where my calendar is. And on that site, you can just log in and set a time right on my calendar. I, I'm not unlimitedly available there, but there are slots that we have there. Uh, and then at Passive Investing Mastery, PassiveInvestingMastery.com, we have ongoing panels on alternative investments, not just in real estate, but we just did one last week and the replay's up. We had uh, we had mobile home parks, car washes, uh, oil and gas. We had a guy that just does gas, a guy that does mats, and <laughs> self-storage units. So we had all kinds of alt assets represented on the last panel that we did. And it was about investing in recessionary times. And so we provide the most relevant education that we can to individuals like your audience and try and get them pointed in the right direction with, with the kinds of right assets at this time that are the right fit for their portfolios. And we bring on all kinds of speakers. Devin, I'd love to have you on sometime on one of those as well, but uh, I'd, I'd recommend getting in there, Passive Investing Mastery. Our goal is really just to increase the financial IQ of America and these alt assets that can really get you free and, and through to retirement faster and live out that retirement in a way where you can leave something to your
0: children. I love it. I love it. Thank you for all of that. That's a lot of resources. We're going to link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can scroll through and click through to, to check all of that out. Uh, Patrick, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. A ton of information here, uh, an incredible journey. I resonated with a lot of that in my in my own journey. So thank you for sharing and I uh, wish you guys continued success ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much,
1: Devin. I look forward to hearing from any of your listeners that want to have a chat.
0: Okay, we'll see you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the DJE Podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.